living in Murray the last four and a half years, I have I've had a couple of nightmares come true. I'll just be honest with you. <clears throat> there have been some really painful, very painful experiences for me uh, here in the last four and a half years. One was when the St. Louis Cardinals won the World Series. And as a lifelong Reds fan, I just... It's just tough to swallow. It's been it's been hard. It was I was hoping that it wouldn't. I, I, I'm I'm a Reds fan among Cardinal fans, and maybe you don't know what that's like. I don't. You all are all the majority here. I don't know if you understand. It's hard. It's tough. You know. It's it's hard. And 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 then last year when Kentucky won the NCAA tournament, I just like I can't get a break. One year it's the Cardinals. The next year it's Kentucky. And again, I'm in the minority as a Louisville fan, but I, I'm, I'm getting close to being even with you. <laughs> Just so you know, in case you have forgotten, last Monday night, for those of you that don't pay attention to the sports world or those who wish I wouldn't say anything, those who have tried to escape to the back row or out the door today, Louisville won Monday night. I just want you to know that. First time since I was eight years old. Are you kidding me? It's been a long, long time. I was telling someone the, the coincidence, and, and maybe it's divine intervention. I don't know. But when, when Louisville last won the championship in 1986, I had been baptized uh, that January and was eight years old, and then they win the championship. My son Hank was baptized at eight years old the week before they won the championship. So I don't know. But something about that. I'm just hoping that he doesn't have to wait until he has an eight-year-old son and then force him to get baptized so that Louisville can win the championship again. But what a, you know, it's a, it's a great deal. But for some of you, that was your worst fear. You know, your worst fear was actually coming to church this morning wondering what I'm going to say about it. Because I hadn't said anything all week. And I really didn't say anything last week either. So, but we're almost, we're almost even. And, and for some, you know, if you're a diehard Louisville fan or a diehard Kentucky fan, then maybe those fears and inner turmoil you've experienced in the last couple of years. And, you know, it's easy to joke about that, and it really is just fun uh, to, to be entertained by that kind of stuff. But, but in reality, the, the fears and the inner turmoil that, that you have in life are a very serious thing. You know, we can joke about, oh, I, I was afraid that this would happen in sports, or, oh, I'm just torn up about that. But really, it doesn't matter. But the things that you have and the things that you face in life are very, very real. I want to tell you what I know about you this morning. And I say you not as Elm Grove Baptist Church, but you as individuals. Let me tell you what I know about you this morning. There were many of you who struggled to sing those songs that we just sang and mean them. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches or his own. You struggled to sing those songs. and You know, I picked those songs for a reason. Because I knew I'd be talking this morning about faith. And I knew, and I set you up, I'm sorry. But I knew that there would be folks here who would sing those songs and not be sure if they truly meant the words. You struggled with that. I also know that you struggle with your faith in God. It, I, now, let me tell you, I'm talking to normal people this morning. If you're a super ultra Christian, then this really doesn't apply to you. You've already covered it all. You are, you are one step from glorification, and, and we recognize that. But for the rest of us this morning, you struggle with your faith in God from time to time, maybe all the time. I recognize that for many of you, you, you often lack peace in your life. You come to church, and maybe this is the only hour a week that you have some semblance of peace. And you say, all right, I can, 
I can just soak up the Lord's presence this morning, but everywhere else you lack peace. I also know that many of you find it difficult to be a Christian on a daily basis. It's hard. It's not easy. Where you work and where you live and the people you're around, they don't make it easy on you to be a person of faith in Christ, a follower of Jesus. I also recognize that many of you know that you should surrender your life completely in every area. Every minute detail should be surrendered to the Lord, but that's easier said than done. It's hard to do that. I know for many of you, you wish that you trusted God more. I, I just wish that in this area of my life, I, I could just trust God more. I know that's the answer to the, to the problem that I'm having. I wish I could just, could just do that. Why can't I trust God more? I know also for many of you, you think that it would be easy to believe in God if He showed up in person and talked in a voice that you could hear. You say, if God would simply show up in my room, my living room, while I'm sitting there praying, and if he showed up, sat down next to me on the couch, we had a conversation, I would find it very, very easy to have greater faith. I'd find it very easy to live without fear. I also know that, that you are living your life every moment of every day by faith in someone or something. Everybody here. And often those things and those people let you down. And you have a lot of disappointments. I also know that you want to live your life with joy. If you're honest and I could go around and I could say, tell me, do you really want to live with joy in your life or do you want to be miserable? Anybody who is sane would say, I want to be a joyful person. But more often than joy, you experience fear. And you experience disappointments. We're in a series called Easter in the Lord's Own Words. And our goal with this is not to find new truth, but to simply get a different perspective. We've looked at the before, the during, and now the after of the Easter events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Where we are today is on Sunday evening of the day of resurrection. Just so you know, that's where we'll be in the scripture. So turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John in the New Testament. If you've got a copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to follow along this morning. And if you don't, if you don't have a copy that, that you find very readable and very understandable, then please let me know, and I'll be happy to help you locate one. Our church will be happy to purchase one for you if you can't afford it. And we want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. Knowing all those things about you, I think will give you some common ground with the people that we're going to look at this morning. You'll see on the back of your bulletin, Three different boxes at the top. Now, I'll warn you up front, you will not see anything appear on the screen that you will be forced to write down in those boxes. They will remain blank the whole time until you write something in there. You're going to be looking this morning as we see this story in John chapter 20 for evidence of fear in the lives of three different people or groups. The disciples, the one named Thomas, and then you. And as we look at this story, I hope that maybe you'll just jot some things down. As you see some evidence of fear that's dominating their lives, that's stealing their joy, what is it that you see? Look in verse 19. John 20, verse 19. In the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Now, what I want to do is work through each verse this morning, so I'll pause quite a bit. The disciples are in a locked room because of the Jews. They're fearful of the Jews. It's kind of like being a L fan in Kentucky country, I'll be honest with you. 
scared to death, outnumbered, but in a real way, these guys are afraid. They have legitimate fear of what might happen to them. You know what they've just seen two days before is Jesus, their master, their leader, their savior, crucified by the Jewish leaders. You can imagine legitimately they've got some fear. What if they come and find us? So why wouldn't they be behind locked doors where no one can get into them? The evidence there of their fears is obviously they've, they've locked the doors. They've huddled up. They're, they're paralyzed by their fear. They don't know what to do. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have things in your life that are just overwhelming and you are scared to death. And if you could, you would lock yourself in a room and never leave. Because then and only then, maybe, could you avoid the things that you're so threatened by, that bring you such great fear. And then at the end of verse 19, then Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus appears without opening the door. Now, this freaked them out. I'll just be honest with you. Jesus had never done this before. You realize that before his resurrection, he was in a body just like yours and just like mine. After his resurrection, there's something different. He can pass through walls without opening the door. Other Gospels record that when he did this, they thought he was a ghost. What in the world has happened? You can imagine if you're there and that happens. Now, those of you who would say, I'd love for God to come and sit down next to me, you would be just like the disciples. You would freak out, run out of the house no matter what time it is, and not stop until you absolutely ran out of breath and collapsed. You would be scared to death. And that's what they are. They don't know what's going on. So he says to them, after appearing through the walls with the doors still locked, peace to you. Now, this is a standard Hebrew greeting, shalom. He says, peace to you. But, but when he uses it here, it's far more than a polite greeting. You know, this morning I had several interactions with people. What do we do when we see someone? I walk up there to class, hey, how you doing? What does he say? I'm good. How are you? I say, well, I'm good, and we move on. Neither one of us are probably good. You know what I mean? Now, I'll speak for myself. Eddie Clyde's pretty good. But, you know, I may not be doing good. But don't we do that all the time? We just give, we throw out these, hey, how's it going? Well, I'm all right. How are you? Lying through your teeth? You're not doing all right? We don't mean anything by the greetings that we have. But when Jesus shows up, and he says, peace to you. There's some weight behind it. He's not just throwing out the typical Hebrew greeting because that's what he's supposed to do when he shows up to the disciples. Hey, shalom, peace to you. He actually means it. And it takes on a much greater significance given what he's just done because peace was the essence of why he came to earth. Peace was the essence of why he died and why he was raised again. He had promised over and over to give his disciples peace, his followers peace, and now he's delivered it. Now, it's not the kind of peace that we heard about in the 1960s. Peace. Just peace from war. And not certainly about the kind of peace that every beauty queen since the invention of beauty pageants has asked for. What do you want most in the world? World peace. That's what they all want. Maybe they have no better answer. Maybe it's the best. I don't know. But that's not what we're talking about. Just peace in general. Jesus is talking about a very specific kind of peace because you and I are born sinners, which means we are born at war with God. Enemies of God, the Bible says. We don't like to think in those terms, but if you don't like to think in those terms, then you're probably not going to like what the Bible has to say because the Bible says that we are born at war with God. We are enemies, and we need someone to make peace. And Jesus, by his death and by his resurrection, has written a peace treaty that God has already signed. We simply need to receive it by faith. So when he says 
peace to you, he really means it. He's not just being polite, Eddie Cloud, how you doing? He's really saying, peace, I have given you everything. And then what he shows them is the evidence of the peace. Shows them his hands, he says, and his side. He shows them that because here's the sign, the peace signs that he has given them. He says, peace to you. Here, here is the evidence, a follow-up, if you will, from what he said on the cross. It is finished. I've done the work, and here's the evidence. And so as Savior, Jesus offers peace to those whose lives are wrecked by sin. Those whose lives are ruined by what they've done. Those who lives, whose lives are in pieces and in shambles. Those whose lives are simply just beaten up by the things they've faced. Those who know they've let the Lord down. Jesus shows up in their midst and says, peace to you. And just simply shows them his wounds. Here's the evidence of my peace. He says, this is what deals with your guilt, your shame, your wrecked lives. Here's peace and here's the evidence. In verse 20, the end of it. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They're scared at first. They've locked the doors. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know who's going to be knocking on the door. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks through the wall and appears to them. They're freaked out by that. But then when he says peace to you and shows them the evidence of who he really is, they rejoiced. He was real, not a ghost. He, he, he was alive, not stolen like they thought. Their fear is replaced by joy. Fear had stolen their joy from them. You, you see the disciples, they don't know what to do. They figure it's all over. Maybe you live there every single day. No joy in your life, stolen by the fear that you have of what might happen or what has happened. But once they saw him, their fear is gone. They begin a path of absolute transformation. The disciples are not the same after the resurrection as they are before. And we see that in their preaching, their ministry in the book of Acts. In verse 21, Jesus says once again, peace to you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He says, I've got something uh, uh, more important for you to do than sit around in a locked room, huddled up, singing kumbaya and hoping that nothing bad happens to you. You realize that as Christians, that's not our role? You, uh, you realize that? Jesus said he would build his church and what? The gates of hell could not withstand it. Do you know what it can't withstand? The attack of the church. We're not the ones behind the gates, huddled up, hoping nothing bad happens to us. And I don't know where you stand on that issue, but some of us have got to get past the fact that we as Christians simply need to huddle up and hope nothing goes wrong. Oh, Lord, please don't let us have problems in life. God, I, I hope you change all the laws in our country to make it okay to be a Christian again. Really? Do we think that's what's going to get it done? It's the power of God who says... You can charge hell, and it cannot withstand you. Our country doesn't matter what it does and what it doesn't. Should we be light and salt? Absolutely. Should we fight for God's uh, influence and so on? Absolutely. Let's go for it. But in the meantime, we can still have peace because Jesus has already won the battle. And Jesus speaks once again says, Peace, I'm sending you out. They're going to go for the same purpose, to reach people that are lost and far from Him. They would do ministry the same way. You realize that the ministry that Jesus did is a far cry from what we do in most churches. Jesus got involved in the lives of people who needed Him. He didn't just simply wait for them to show up. He went to them, went to the multitudes, went to where those who were lame and sick and were sinners. He went to the prostitutes and the lepers, the people that were outcasts in His society. That's where He went and hung out and He was criticized for it. They hated him because of it. 
because they just wanted to huddle up. They just wanted to have what I heard a pastor say one time, a holy huddle. Let's just get together. But Jesus says, no, 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 as I have been sent, I'm sending you, so you must go out and be involved. Life on life, among the sinners, doing justice for those who need it, ministering to both body and soul. Those folks were not to change the message, not to change the mission, but simply do it as Jesus had done it. Then verse 22, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Here's a preview of the power they would receive. We know in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and they are empowered for ministry like never before. Jesus is telling them, once I leave, you will receive a brand new power. Instead of the Holy Spirit coming upon people for just a short time for a specific purpose like he did in the Old Testament, now the Holy Spirit will come to indwell every single believer all the time forever. Without the Holy Spirit, these guys would have been on their own. Their mission was going to overwhelm them. They, they, they wouldn't have been able to do what God had called them to do without the Holy Spirit. Jesus physically could only be with one or two of them at a time and be present with them. But when he ascends to heaven and sends his Holy Spirit, he's able to be with them all. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this in a way that may offend a few of you, and I don't know. If you've seen Star Wars, then you know in Episode 4, which is the first one, A New Hope, the first one, 1977, the classic, the year I was born, by the way. <clears throat> that was a cheap shot, sorry. But for some of you, it was. For some of you, think, how? He's old. For others, you're thinking, he's really young. I like that. So, <clears throat> Star Wars, right in the middle of Star Wars Episode 4, there's, there's an escape, uh, I guess, attempt by Luke Skywalker and Han Solo to get away from, uh, from, the, from uh, uh, all the, uh, the Empire. And in that, there's a battle, a lightsaber battle between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader. Now, the music's great. I mean, it's just, it's going the whole time. My little son Duke now can sing, dun, 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 dun. you know, he, he can do that now, and it's, ah, here they go. They're battling. This is great. The classic movies. If you haven't seen Star Wars, I apologize. Bear with me for a little bit. I happen to be a Star Wars fan. They battle, and then finally, Obi-Wan, who's an old man at this time, he looks at Darth Vader, and he says, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than ever. And he turns off his lightsaber, and Darth Vader kills him. Luke, at that moment, thinks it's all over. He's just getting to know Obi-Wan Kenobi. He hasn't spent much time with him, and he's still learning the ways that, that Obi-Wan wants him to follow. And he thinks it's all over. What he doesn't realize, though, is that's just the beginning of Obi-Wan's influence in his life. If you see through the next scenes in that movie and the following two movies, Obi-Wan's presence is all over the place. and he's, he's talking through the Force to Luke and all that stuff. Now, again, I may offend you with comparing somehow the Force to the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to do that, but it's a good illustration to show that when Jesus left physically and sent his Spirit, he is able now to indwell all of us all the time, each individually. And so in a much more real, true, and powerful way, Jesus gives his spirit to believers. Much more true, much more powerful, much more real than Obi-Wan and the Force. Maybe that helps you kind of understand. And so Jesus says to you and me at the, the moment of salvation, receive the Holy Spirit, just as he says to these guys in verse 22. And their mission would have been impossible without the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you feel God has put you on this earth to do. I don't know if you're doing what you feel God has put you on this earth to do. If you feel like you are right in the middle of where you have been called to be and sent to be, 
But let me tell you this, if you receive the call of God on your life and you say, God, send me where you want me to, you cannot do it on your own. You will fail miserably every time. You say, well, I've got a good strategy. That may be helpful. Well, I've got enough money to finance the project. That'll be helpful. But without the Holy Spirit of God, your plans are doomed to fail. Absolutely every single time. Because God will not be in it. You realize in the book of Acts, when these, when these apostles, it's a great story, the apostles are, are, are preaching and so on, and, they, and the, the Pharisees have a meeting. And they're trying to decide, what do we do with these guys? They won't shut up. They won't stop preaching about Jesus. What are we going to do with them? And one wise Pharisee comes to him and says, let it ride for a while. Because if this isn't of God, it will die. But if it's of God, guess what he says? You can't stop it. They had the Holy Spirit empowering them, and they were sent. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them in verse 23 an idea of the kind of ministry they'd get to do. Look at this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, that's a confusing verse. You say, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that, that I can forgive people's sins? The Bible makes it very clear in Mark chapter 2 that only God, God alone, no man can forgive sin. There is no man that can forgive sin. Make no mistake about that. Only God himself can forgive sin. So what is he, what is he saying? Well, I, I looked up, because this is a little confusing. I tried to look up and study this just a tad. Because if you read that verse by itself, you're going to think, now what is Jesus saying? It doesn't make any sense. So I looked up and just did a little study. And I'm not going to get bogged down here, but let me kind of tell you essentially what most conservative scholars that I looked at would say about this verse. All right, I'm not the smart guy here, so I went to some smart guys and tried to figure out what they think about it what they have studied. We've just seen that the disciples have been sent as Jesus was sent. So they're to minister and to preach as he did. And when they preach, here's the, the thrust of this verse, when they preach and people repent, they now have the ability to say, yes, that person has been forgiven. I can declare you forgiven, not because I've forgiven you, but because there's obvious evidence of repentance in your life that God has forgiven your sin. And the, and the, the flip side of that is true, vice versa. If you see a person who says, well, y'all, I've come to faith in Christ, but there's no evidence of repentance whatsoever in their life. They're still living exactly the same way, with the same attitudes. There's no change in their, in their life. You can, with confidence, say, I, I don't believe you've been forgiven by God. There's no evidence of repentance. That's what he's saying. You get to be a part of the same kind of ministry that Jesus did, of preaching the word and seeing people come to repentance, and then with confidence saying, absolutely. I believe God's forgiven you. When I baptize folks... I do it with confidence because I believe that each person, as I've talked with them, has been forgiven of their sins by God, has repented, and now is given new life. You can imagine the disciples excited. Look at this new mission, this new power they're going to be able to experience. But one of them wasn't there. Look at verse 24. But one of the twelve, Thomas, called twin, he had a twin brother, was not with them when Jesus came. Of all the disciples not to be there, it would have to be Thomas. You realize that, that if you did a personality analysis on some of the different apostles, you'd see the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament as this bold, brash, fearless, opportunistic, uh, unashamed preacher of the gospel. And we, we, like, we want to be like Paul. I don't want to care what anybody thinks. I want to stand up for the Lord. That's the way Paul was. You see, Peter, before the resurrection, is impulsive, as uh, constantly suffering from foot-and-mouth disease. Maybe you've been there. He's, he's, he's just doing whatever comes to his mind. Later on, he will become very bold and wise. And then there's Thomas. 
Now, I like Thomas because I can relate to Thomas. I struggle to relate to Paul. I'll be honest with you. Paul is absolutely unafraid of anything ever. Ever. Now, that may be you. I would venture to say not many of us are as fearless as Paul. I can relate more to Thomas. Why? Because he's often pessimistic. You trace what he says in the New Testament, and Jesus tells them he's going to Jerusalem. He said, well, okay, let's go die with him. Let's go. Jesus says, look, you know where I'm going. He says, I don't know where you're going. How are we going to know? Why don't you show us where you're going? And that's when Jesus responds, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas is pessimistic. He's unsure of things. He's hesitant to jump in with both feet. His faith is a struggle for him. I can relate to him. Maybe you can too. He's, he seems to be a very normal kind of guy. And he's unfortunately for him forever labeled as what? Doubting Thomas. Great. Wouldn't you want to be labeled by your most infamous failure? <laughs> I'd rather not. I'd rather be labeled by my greatest success. But here's Thomas, who would later on, according to tradition, take the gospel to other places, labeled forever doubting Thomas. You know he's got to be tired of that by now. I'm not sure what perspective folks in heaven have on our lives here on earth, but if he can have perspective and hear himself referred to as Doubting Thomas over and over. I would imagine he's a little sick of it. Maybe you've been labeled before, and you can't bust free from it. You've labeled yourself, I'll always be this, I'll always be that. Or somebody just, every time they see you, they remind you of your greatest faults. Maybe you've got people like that. Thomas gives evidence of his fear. I really believe fear is driving him because he's skeptical. He's pessimistic. He's, his, his fear leads him to unbelief. What's he afraid of? He's afraid Jesus is a fraud. He's afraid that, that his worst nightmares have come true, that Jesus really wasn't who he says he is. He's afraid that he had devoted his life to a lie. He's afraid that all of his buddies are going crazy or seeing things or just trying to be positive and make him feel better. He's afraid that it wasn't true. None of it. And his fear drives him to pessimism. And look what he says. The disciples keep telling him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, what? I will never believe. He wasn't there, so they keep telling him. But he says, no, 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 that's not enough for me. I want proof. Seeing is believing, he says. His pessimism, his anxiety is evident. The fear that he had had really choked out all the joy in his life, and he wouldn't even believe what his closest friends told him. Look at verse 26. After eight days. Now, stop there for eight days. Are you kidding me? Jesus knows one of his 11 remaining disciples is struggling in his faith and he waits for eight days following Monday. Thomas is a mess. The disciples are still a little bit scared. After eight days, why in the world would he wait eight full days to show up to Thomas when he knows what's going on? You ever waited on the Lord like that and you wonder, Hello, God, it's been eight days, still struggling. God, it's been eight months, it's been eight years. Lord, I've struggled my whole life with this issue. Where are you? You know, I take comfort in the fact, honestly, that Jesus waited eight days because it tells me that Jesus is okay with our struggles. You realize that doubt in your faith is not the unforgivable sin? Everyone doubts. Everyone has questions. Not everyone has all the answers. And Jesus appears to be okay with Thomas going over a week 
not truly believing that Jesus has risen from the dead, though he'd followed him around for three years. I take comfort in that. You know, sometimes Jesus allows us just to wrestle with our doubts and our fears. To get us to the point, one writer has called it, an ancient writer called it, the dark night of the soul. To get us to the point where nothing will sustain us apart from Jesus Christ. Everything peeled back. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're in a dark night of the soul and you say, I'm scared to death, I have no faith, I don't know what God is doing, and he seems to not even be there. Maybe Thomas could relate to you. For eight days he waited on the Lord. For eight days they kept telling him over and over, it's true, it's true, it's true. For eight days he said, no, 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 I won't believe until I see it. The disciples are back together again and finally Thomas is with them. Maybe they'd given up by this point on teaching him, or telling him rather, the, the truth. And then it says, after eight days, the disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, now don't miss that part, the disciples are still a little scared too. You realize that those who seem to have it all together don't always have it all together? The disciples had seen him eight days before, had seen Jesus, and they're still locking the doors. They're still a little bit unsure. They're still a little bit afraid. So after eight days, they're there together, the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace to you for the third time. They just needed to hear it again. Then he approached Thomas. This is great. Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do not be an unbeliever, but be a believer. Now there's another version that says, Do not be unbelieving or continue in your unbelief, but be believing and keep on believing. Don't stop believing. I think that was a journey song. Don't stop believing. Keep on believing. Jesus approaches Thomas, and he immediately gets the attention of the most needy person in the room. And look what he says to him. Thomas, you are a knucklehead. You've, you've had eight days to listen to all your buddies that you've walked around with for the last three years tell you I'm alive, the tomb is empty, and you, you don't believe it? Look, I've had other stuff to do for eight days. That's why I didn't come to you. What in the world is your problem? All he says to Thomas, check it out. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Have faith. Believe. He doesn't beat him up. He doesn't remind him of all his failures. He just simply comes to him and says, here's some compassion. Here's some grace. Here's some love. And here's proof that you asked for. He says, don't be unbelieving any longer, but be believing and keep on believing. And then Thomas's response, <laughs> verse 28, Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Perhaps the greatest confession of faith in all the New Testament, right up there when, with what Peter said in Matthew 16, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. He says, Thomas says, you are God and, and I surrender. You're God, you're my Lord, I, I surrender. And then Jesus tells him, because you have seen me, you have believed. He confirms that. But then he says, and don't miss this for us, those who believe without seeing are blessed. There's a unique blessing for those who have not had Jesus come and sit in your living room and talk to you in a voice that you can hear. There is a special and unique blessing. I don't know exactly what it is, maybe increased faith. But there is a unique blessing for those who will believe in Jesus without having seen him. And then... Look, and, and by the way, that's us, those who have not seen, physically seen Jesus. Then verse 30, 
Jesus, this is John the Apostle writing, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these, these stories, these, these signs are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. John tells us his purpose for documenting, for compiling, for writing, and for preserving stories like this one. That he wants people to come to faith in Jesus and receive true life in his name. The resurrection is true, John says. He, here's proof. And that's the whole reason that he wrote. He didn't write about a myth. You know, faith for the sake of faith or faith in something, faith in yourself is useless and stupid. I'll be honest with you. You can have all the faith you want to have in yourself and you are flawed just like I am. If I believe in myself, I am believing in a flawed human being who will one day let me down. And that, that day will be today. I will let myself down today. But faith in Jesus Christ brings eternal life, which according to John, begins at the moment of salvation. The blessings of eternal life begin now. So what about you? Three boxes on that paper. Evidence of the disciples' fear. Evidence of Thomas's fear and his skepticism and unbelief. What about you? If you're honest with you in that little box there on your bulletin, what evidence is there of fear in your life? Are you anxious? You a hand wringer all the time? You just scared? Just nervous? Well, I just have to worry because nobody else is, it seems. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're full of anger because things have gone wrong or you're fearful they will and you're on edge all the time or you're just impulsive. You're going to do something even if it's wrong. Or maybe you're the opposite of that. You're just paralyzed by fear, and you, you can't even hardly leave the house. You, you struggle to carry on conversations and to put one foot down in front of the other. Or maybe your fear has led you to, to some bad decisions. You, you fear God won't meet this need, so you decide to do this and take it on yourself. I see that a lot, especially in young people. They fear God won't need their physical and sexual needs, and so they begin to take those matters into their own hands, and they make bad decisions. Maybe you have relational problems or marital issues or you're working yourself to death, afraid you're going to fall behind, and it's all because of fear. Or maybe you're the person nobody likes to be around because you're the negative person in every relationship. You're just a drag on everybody. You know it. They know it. We all know it. Just don't elbow anybody or point at me, okay? What's the evidence of fear? Let me give you two observations this morning of truth. And then I'll give you one statement, a couple of applications, and we're going to close very quickly. Two observations of truth that come from this passage of Scripture, Jesus and what John is writing about. Fear chokes the joy out of life. Fear chokes the joy out of life. The disciples experienced that. They had no joy in that room with the doors locked. They're scared to death. But Thomas experienced this. For eight days he goes and he is... He is joyless in life because he's scared to death that the, what he's believed is not true. And you and I experience this as well. There are times when everything seems to go wrong and you become fearful of how that's going to affect you now and what that's going to do in the future. So you, you, you fail to trust God. Yeah, my, my fear is choking the joy out of my life, so I'm not going to trust God anymore. So I worry and I stress and I get bent out of shape. And there are times when you, when you fear that that doing what God has said to do isn't going to work out, that He won't meet your deepest needs, and so you don't trust God. You operate without His guidance. You follow what everybody else seems to think is right, or you just try to figure it out as you go. And so your relationships, your job, your future, your kids, your, 
your marriage, your finances, every area of life suffers because there's no joy in those things because you're scared to death to do things God's way and see Him work. So joy is choked out of life by fear. You've seen evidence of that in the disciples, in Thomas, and certainly in your own life. But the second aspect of that truth is what I want you to make sure that you apply this week, and that is that faith chokes the life out of fear. Fear will always choke the joy out of life, but your faith will always choke the life out of fear. Three times Jesus says, peace to you. (laughs) He reminds them over and over and over and over, peace to you, peace to you. They rejoiced when they saw him. They're changed. They now have joy. Their lives after the resurrection weren't easy, but they gave evidence that they had seen and believed in Jesus. He tells Thomas, don't stop believing. Thomas, don't stop. And Thomas didn't. He didn't stop. He kept on believing. You may say, well, you know, I can't have faith like that. I've never seen Jesus physically. If I had lived back then and been in that room, and even if I had been Thomas, I'd have have proof to believe. Let, Let me tell you the proof that we have of the resurrection. First of all, there's an empty tomb. No one can dispute historically that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. He is not buried anywhere. Never found his body. You know why? Because there was no body to be found. He's alive. The empty tomb gives us proof. Not only that, but there are eyewitnesses. There are individuals. There are groups like we've seen today. And Paul records in 1 Corinthians that there were over 500 people that Jesus appeared to at one time. Eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus was indeed alive after he had died. Not only that, but the disciples were different men after they knew he was alive. Their newfound courage was amazing. Peter goes from being the guy who denies that he even knows Jesus to the man who is willing to be beaten and imprisoned for preaching in the name of Jesus. That doesn't happen unless he's seen Jesus resurrected, and Jesus really was a real person, not a ghost. You also see the change in the lives of people like James, the half-brother of Jesus. You realize that that Jesus' half-brother, another son of Mary, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection? That's that's his his (laughs) half-brother. Maybe you don't like your brother. I don't know. But maybe, maybe Jesus was resented. But after the resurrection, James says, I am a slave of God and of my Lord Jesus Christ. In James chapter 1, verse 1. You also see the conversion of, of Paul. You realize that Paul was a Pharisee, the greatest enemy of Christianity. Then he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And guess what? He becomes Christianity's greatest ambassador, greatest missionary, greatest spokesman. A Pharisee would not have converted to Christianity if he had not truly known and seen Jesus. And then you have the martyrdom of most of the apostles and of countless people throughout history. Why would they die for a lie? Why? There's no reason for them to die for something that wasn't true. We have proof and all the proof we need, and now it's time for faith. But it's not a blind leap of faith. I honestly believe that it takes a blind leap of faith to deny the validity of the resurrection and to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. It takes a greater leap of faith to do that than to place your faith in Jesus Christ because we have great evidence and great proof that He is who He says He is. So what do you do? Now what? All right, that's great truth. Fear chokes the joy out of life, but my faith chokes the life out of fear. All right, I'm fired up and ready to go. Now what do I do? I want to give you this statement and then ask you to consider how you can apply it. You will not often be called to take blind leaps of faith, but you are always called to take daily steps of faith. 
you are not often called to take blind leaps of faith. Sometimes maybe you will. You say, you know what, <laughs> I really feel like God has called me to do this, and I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm jumping anyway. Occasionally God may call you to that, but I guarantee you every day God will call you to take steps of faith. So this week, consider first how fear and lack of faith is choking the joy out of your life, and then consider, am I tired of that? Am I tired of no joy in my life? Am I tired of no peace in my life? Am I tired of the anxiety, being paralyzed, of fear? Am I tired of the ruined relationships and the anger that I have, the bad decisions that I make because I can't trust God? Am I tired of all that? And if so, and I believe you are, if so, my encouragement to you is to take daily steps of faith inside your home and outside your home this week. Trust Jesus this week in a way that you are not in the habit of doing. What daily step of faith has God called you to take? The first step, I'll just tell you, is to say what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. To confess Jesus as your Savior. The only way that God has provided for us to have peace with Him is through Jesus Christ. And that must be received by faith in Jesus, by surrender to Him. And then and only then can you have the Holy Spirit power within you so that fear no longer has to choke the joy out of your life. So that faith can now choke the life out of fear in you. What daily steps of faith has God called you to take personally, relationally, vocationally, with your purpose in life, financially? What is it that God says, I want you to follow me, I want you to be obedient, I want you to trust me in this area. If you're tired of fear choking the joy out of your life, then let your faith choke the life out of your fear. Faith not in yourself, but faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, show us where we need to take a, a step of faith this morning. Or maybe it's the person who needs to take the very first step of faith and to confess you as my Lord and my God. Lord, I pray that that would be true this morning. That for those who need salvation, Lord, they would receive it this morning. Lord, for those who say, I'm, I'm already a Christian, I already believe in Jesus, but I, I'm sort of like Thomas, I need to continue believing. Lord, help us this week to take a daily step of faith. Show us what it is. Maybe we already know. Help us, Lord, with our faith. We pray that no longer would, would fear choke the joy out of our lives, but Lord, by applying our faith, that we would choke the life out of that fear. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing us peace between us and our Heavenly Father. We pray in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.